Our sermon text today is from uh, Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 1, and then verses 4 through 14. I'd like to say a few words of introduction about this uh, passage first. Jeremiah was writing this particular section to the people who were in exile that left in the first wave of exiles. There were two waves of exiles for the kingdom of Judah. One was at 597 B.C., and that's when their king was taken, uh, one of their kings was taken exile. And with him, a lot of people that were high up in the court, artisans, craftsmen, people who um, had land, things like that. The, the Babylonians then set up sort of a puppet government in those intervening ten, in the next 10 years, but they also rebelled against the Babylonians. So in 587 B.C., just 10 years later, uh, then the Babylonians came back and they destroyed Jerusalem. And so there were, there were some important people in this first wave of exile who were, who were living in, in Babylon, and there were certain prophets among them that said, it won't be long before you're going to be sent home. The, it's just looking that way. Uh, we've had some dreams. I think we're, gonna, I think we're all going to be sent back to uh, Judah before long, back to Jerusalem. So one of the reasons that Jeremiah writes this letter is to correct that. He writes back and says, actually, that's not true. Don't listen to those false prophets. You will be there for at least 70 years, not just a short amount of time. So it was to lower expectations big time, but also to say, those are false prophets. I'm the true prophet. I'm the one who has, has um, received this from the Lord. As it turns out, Jeremiah was right, of course. Uh, the Babylonians later were conquered by the Persians, and the Persians did allow uh, the, these, the, the descendants of these people who received this letter to return back to Jerusalem where they began to rebuild. So one of the reasons for this letter is to correct some false prophecies that were going on. But as we'll see, there's advice in this letter about what to do in a place where you know you're going to be there for 70 years and what to do in a place where you're the captives of your own enemies, people you really hate. What should you do in a place like that? So that's where some of the advice comes, and the, the advice comes from the Lord. So let's go to our reading, Jeremiah 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. 
I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to go over this passage just sort of piece by piece and then maybe look at some applications that we can have for us. First off, I have to say that in my reading, somebody wrote that this is the only time in the Old Testament that a a nation is asked to pray for their enemies. We know this very much as a New Testament concept. Jesus tells people to do this. Pray for your enemies. Uh, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Generally speaking, in the Old Testament, nobody ever prayed for their enemies. That never happens in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if you had enemies, you would call down curses upon your enemies. Or you would ask God to smite them, uh, or other kind of archaic words like that. Um, Or you you um, you would insult your enemies. You would sort of call down, uh, call down uh, not just curses, but just make fun of them, really. You would, you would kind of attribute all sorts of terrible things to your, enemy, your enemies. But here, in this unusual place in all of the Old Testament, God says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile and pray to the Lord for it. So that's an interesting thing that we should want to pay attention to. This was really radical, kind of countercultural thing for Jeremiah to write to the people who were in exile. You're in exile, you've been carried away, you're not really enjoying yourself very much there. Um, you're hoping to come home, and instead of the advice that may have been like, find all the ways you could subvert the kingdom where you're living now so that when it gets overthrown, you can be on top. Something like that. Or just keep to yourselves. Keep to yourselves and just sort of hunker down. This storm may pass with time, but you just need to really keep a low profile. It doesn't say that either. It says, go and engage in that city that I have sent you. Do all sorts of things there. Plant gardens. You know, make food for yourself. Uh, beautify the place. Gardens weren't just uh, for food in those cities. They were very ornamental. If you planted a garden, it was to beautify your neighborhood. Beautify the neighborhood in a place where you're in exile. And then all these other things that really are about living. Get married. Have children. Don't just have a few children. Have a lot of children. Don't just have two because then you'd be replacing yourself. Have more than two children because he wants, he says, Grow, increase, don't decrease. Have large families 
in this place of exile. Well, that's interesting. And then encourage your children themselves to have large families. Give your sons and daughters away in marriage to other people so that you can grow. Um, so it's, the advice is not just hide or subvert, but it's to engage in this city that you've been thrown into by exile, by God. It's interesting that God says, it's, I'm the one who put you into exile, not Nebuchadnezzar, not the, not the Babylonians. And then it says, to seek the prosperity and peace of that city. Now that word there is actually just one word in the Hebrew. It's shalom. The word shalom, and we're familiar with that word. But there's a lot of meanings of, of shalom in the Old Testament that have to do with completeness, with welfare, and with peace. Uh, it, it has to do with safety. It has to do with prosperity and health. It also has to do with peace and quiet, tranquility and contentment. And it has to do with friendship. So there's a lot of ideas uh, um, inside that word shalom. And the people who translated the New, New International Version, at least, chose to just pick two of those concepts of that word shalom. Seek the peace of the city that you're in and seek the prosperity of the city that you're in. Seek that it would go well even for the people who took you captive, which is interesting. As I said, it's kind of countercultural. Now there is a little bit of sort of practical advice in there, if you see in verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So there's a little bit of them sort of patting themselves on the back, I guess, or sort of helping themselves. If the city that you move to prospers, that prosperity will also come to you. But all this is in the context of, yet, this will only last for 70 years. Does that make sense? Does it, the example I kind of give is, and, and, and I do, uh, I, this sounds like I don't do this, but I do do this. Uh, do you guys make your bed? You make your bed in the morning, right? But you're just going to sleep in it again, right? That whatever, whatever peace and prosperity you bring to the top of your bed to make it smooth is going to be destroyed at 10 p.m. that night. So does it make sense to make your bed? Right? Does it make sense? Does it, and the answer is yes, it makes sense. And actually, I do make the bed. as my wife attested to the other night. He actually makes the bed, so that's good. But you could actually make a good case that it's pointless to make your bed because it's going to get slept in again. Why would you beautify a city that's going to be destroyed? Why would you seek the prosperity of a people who themselves, although they took you into exile, they themselves are going to be conquered in 70 years by a whole other people group. What good is that? Is it just for the 70 years of prosperity that you can enjoy with them in that time? Is it so that you can grow and increase during that time? There's something more to it. There's something more to it. And I want to come back to that later. I want to leave that out there as that question. Why would God say this? Why would God say, make the bed that you're going to sleep in later? Uh, so, um, but then we have this word of God's plans. I know the plans I have for you. They involve 70 years of exile. These plans are good for you. 
They're not to hurt you, but to prosper you and to make you grow. They're a good thing. Now, as we often see, uh, especially if you go to a Christian bookstore, right around graduation time, you can get this verse, verse 11, I know the plans that I have for you. Uh, you could give it to a, high school gra- a Christian high school graduate, and it'd be like, yeah, you know, this is, the world is full of potential and possibility. Uh, we kind of have used this verse to think about just one person. I know the plans that I have for you, singular, says the Lord. This is not written to a single person. This is written to a nation. Not only that, it's written to a nation that's waiting and has been told that they have to wait 70 more years. So that kind of makes it a little more interesting. It actually would be kind of bad, a bad thing to give to somebody. If I gave you that verse, it might mean I thought that you're in a terrible place and you will be for another 70 years. Then you would be like, well, why are you giving me this? Thanks a whole lot. You know, I, I didn't really, is it that bad? Is it something on my face? Um, but God says, he, his hand, his sovereign hand is on his people through every phase of what they're going through, including that they were taken into exile. He had a plan in them, and a lot of them died, and a lot of them suffered on the way to Babylon, and he had a hand on them while they were in Babylon waiting those 70 years, and he had a plan for them when the Persians conquered the Babylonians after that time and then sent them back to to Judah, to Jerusalem, so that they could rebuild it. Those 70 years in the life of God's people, it turns out, were among the most fertile and creative times of their existence. That's when they they put down to paper a lot of the Bible. That's when they meditated a whole lot on what God had for them. They had lost everything. Everything except for the Scriptures which they they suddenly found were so valuable to them that they began to shape their entire lives around. That's an incredibly powerful time for God's people, and God had a plan for it. If, If they hadn't been taken into exile, I don't know what our Bible would look like. I don't know if we would have this redemptive language that we have. But God God knew it and had a plan for it, and had a plan for it to be created. It makes me wonder about my own life and about our lives together. There's so many things that we have in our lives. What if all we had in our life to shape our life around was God's Word? What if that was the only thing that shaped us? What would our lives look like? Well, we get a glimpse of of that in this 70-year interlude when when God's people were in captivity. They were able to shape their lives around God. And God then tells them, seek after me in this time. Call upon me. Pray to me. I'll listen to you. Seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This unreserved pursuit of God in this time of brokenness and trial. One of the questions that kind of comes out of a reading like this is, what are people supposed to do when they're in exile? What were the people of, of Judah, of Jerusalem, supposed to do when they were stuck hundreds of miles away for 70 years? The answer was that they were to seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the city where they were, and to pray to God on its behalf. 
One of the things that Christians do is they kind of wonder, where is my true home? Where do I really belong? And how am I supposed to live in this world? Am I supposed to really get involved in this world so that I get so taken in by this world that I've lost sight of God? Or do I keep myself so completely apart from this world that I barely touch it with a pinky finger every now and then and I don't let it taint me ever? And you'll have Christians that live on on this entire spectrum of way over-involvement and over-identification with the world to the other end where they just... They'll, they'll, they'll find every possible way to have absolutely nothing to do with the world. This is a word for Christians, too. What do we do in a place that's not really our home? Um, some Christians have this shorthand that they say, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Maybe some of you have heard that before. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, which I think is useful. I think it's a shorthand. Uh, there's a lot more that you could unpack around that. And to me, that means that they live in the world, they, um, they live in it, they, they do commerce in it, but they are not going to let the world give them their identity or tell them who they are. They're in the world, but not of the world. I think we could use this passage and, and other places in the Bible to expand that concept a little bit. And what I would, what I would think of as the way a Christian could live in the world would be to have a mindful and redemptive engagement with the world. That's the pattern of this passage, at least. A mindful and redemptive engagement with the world. Christians know that we don't belong here. Perhaps you've had that feeling from time to time where you've you've been involved with something that the world is doing and you know in your heart that This isn't really of God. This really is just human effort, and it's fallen and broken, and you can't fully identify with it. Uh, I had an experience like that when I was in an international summer school. They brought together students from all around the world and uh, put on this big facade of peace and human cooperation between all these people. But underneath the surface, it wasn't really all working And it was so humanistic. It was so much about the human potential that we had to actually create peace in this world. And to me, in that moment, it was really a sharp sort of distinction. That, in that moment, it felt completely false to me. It felt like something I just couldn't get behind. And I realized it was one of those moments where my worldview was far more uh, shaped by the Bible than it was by any idea of human potential that we could achieve peace or any kind of prosperity in this world apart from God. It was a totally sort of agnostic or even atheistic view of the world. And I found myself gravitating gravitating towards the edge of the room, watching it and thinking, I don't belong here. This, I, I can't drink this Kool-Aid, so to speak. I, I don't really get what's going on in this room. I, don't, I can't identify with that. As Christians, we know we don't belong in this world. We know it's a fallen place and that in general people either don't care about God at all or they're enemies of God. They're really opposed to God and and what God wants to do in the world. And we also know that at some point in time, although we don't know when, our time in this world will end and the world will be redeemed somehow. The world will change. The bed is going to get made. 
somehow or other. What that looks like, I don't know. You know whether the, the bed's going to burn up and a new bed will show up, or the bed we have is going to get a, a really nice treatment and the chocolate on the pillow, I don't know. Let's wait and see. We'll find out. But the bed's going to get made. The place, this planet's going to be redeemed by God. And we also know that part of that redemption that God wants to bring about is through us. It's through our life in the world. And so God wants us to be mindful about how we engage in the world and engage the world knowing that our work in the world is part of God's redemptive plan for the world. I left that question out there. Why do, you, why do you make the bed if it's just going to be slept again? Why do you do that if you know this is going to end? And it reminded me of what Jesus did. Jesus came into this world very much as an exile, when you think about it. He was sent by his father. He left his royal throne at God's right hand. He entered into human flesh, and he was born into a place that was not his home. He was a stranger and an alien in this world. It was not his true place to live in, fallen, in the fallen world. But while he was in this world, he didn't hunker down. He didn't keep himself at arm's length from the world. He engaged so completely with the world around him. He lived. He entered into people's houses and he ate with them. He touched lepers. He healed people. He wept. He allowed his emotions to, con- to, to have a full expression. He wept when his, uh, when his friend Lazarus died. He wept over the city and he prayed for the city. Isn't that interesting that Jesus also prayed for the city? In Luke chapter 13 and Luke chapter 24, Jesus laments and prays over Jerusalem, over the city, a city that has rejected God, yet a city that he has to enter and redeem for God. It seems to me that if we're going to think about how Christians engage in the world, it should be patterned after the life of Jesus. This is not our true home. Somewhere else is our true home. Or else this redeemed world, when it finally is redeemed, that's our true home. But our our true home is not now, it's not yet, and it's not here. But yet we live in this world, mindfully, knowing that we have to make our way in this world. We have to do what it says in uh, Jeremiah. Plant gardens. Get a job. Get married. Have children. Don't just try to disappear from this world. Engage this world as fully as you can in the way even that Jesus did. Enter into other people's houses. Enter into other people's lives because God wants to redeem the world through us. And then we we know that if there were 70 years left for Babylon, there may be 70 years left for this world. There may be seven years left for this world. There may be seven months left for this world. We don't know. But we have to live each day as if it was either 100 years away or tomorrow. That makes no difference. We live each day knowing that God redeems the world through us. And we live in this world, even though there's all sorts of things in this world that take our attention and that are very comfortable for us and that are nice to have, we live in this world as if the only thing we have is God's Word. 
and that we are completely shaped by God's world while we are in exile in this place. So a radical seeking of God is what we're up to while we're shaped by Scripture and we're mindfully engaged with our culture because God wants to redeem it through us. That's what it looks like. I think there's two questions that maybe come. What should we do if we feel too comfortable here? And there's times where I feel too comfortable in this world. I love this world. It's beautiful. I love, I love all my toys. You should come to my house. There's a lot of little electronic gadgets around. Some of them that I've bought and used once and then thought, eh, and I should really sell it on eBay, but I, I just, that's too much work. So don't, you know, I should just give it away. Sometimes I can get really comfortable in this world. And when I do, I get a little worried, right? And you should. There's other times when I'm not so much in this world because I'm thinking about my future home so much that I don't really engage with where I am. We commit to the place that we're in, but we don't mistake it for home. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain. I think he encapsulates it really well. He writes this, The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment he has scattered broadcast. We are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world, and it would pose an obstacle to our return to God. All we get are a few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bathe, which is a swim in British English, a bathe or a football match. I think he meant soccer. All those things are great, but they have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. This isn't our home. But Christians are called to make it home for a season, seeking the peace and prosperity of this world and living in the hope that God will redeem this world in his own time through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Teach us to live like Jesus, to enter this world and to love it as you loved it and to redeem it as you redeemed it. And remind us of where our true home lies. Amen.